Please turn in Holy Scripture to Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. I am going to read verses 25 to 37. Hear then what Scripture says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Now, although I have not field-tested the theory, I suspect that this is the best-known parable of Jesus in the Western world today. And it is understood to mean something like, all of Christianity is really about being nice to your neighbor. That's what Christianity is about. That's what Jesus says. Not many however, would remember that the parable itself, verses 30 to 35, is nestled within the larger block from verse 25 on. Still fewer would be able to say what comes earlier in the chapter and what comes later in the chapter and how does this fit in to the Gospel of Luke. Now, my dad was a Baptist pastor, and I picked up a lot of my habits for good and ill from him. He had a number of little sayings. One was, a text without a context becomes a pretext 
for a proof text. Now, I'm old enough that when he quoted scripture, it was the King James Version. Actually, I was brought up in both English and French. I was brought up in French Canada. So sometimes he'd quote the Bible to us in English and sometimes in French. And he, he himself, I confess, would sometimes quote the Bible out of context. But when he did it, he was simply scoring points. He knew he was doing it, but he wanted to score points, for example. If we were complaining about the weather or the circumstances of life, he would say, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. <laughs> now, he knew perfectly well it wasn't talking about the weather and attitudes toward life, and it has a messianic overtone, but his mind was so steeped in Scripture that, 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 that that's the language in which he spoke to us, do, do, do you see? And if we were pontificating on something about which we knew absolutely nothing, which was pretty often, then he, he would say, using the King James Version, he would say, he wist not what to say, so he said. <laughs> now, if you didn't get that, you're a little rusty on your King James English. But a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. And we're not going to understand this parable very well until we see the immediate context and the larger context and see what God is telling us here. So... I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the theory of preaching parables anymore, but some of what I said yesterday will spill over into unpacking this parable today. We'll look at the parable in its immediate context, then in its slightly more extended context, and then we'll reflect on how it bears on us today. First then, the parable in its immediate context. If you take a look at the passage and read it slowly, you will discover that it's structured in a pair of dialogues. In each case, this lawyer asks a question, and instead of Jesus answering the lawyer, Jesus asks his own question. Then the lawyer answers Jesus' question, and only then does Jesus answer the lawyer's question. Take a look. The whole pattern is then repeated. So, verse 25... The lawyer asks his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And instead of answering, Jesus asks his question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So then in the third place, the lawyer answers Jesus' question. He quotes the Bible to answer it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus answers the lawyer's question. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then the whole pattern is repeated. The lawyer asks another question, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks his question, but in order to ask the question, he has to tell a story first. The parable of the Good Samaritan is simply a setup for Jesus' question. The question he's going to ask is, who is the neighbor to this chap, to the poor blighter who fell among robbers? So he tells the story, and then he asks his question, and then the lawyer asks answers Jesus' question, the one who had mercy on him, and then Jesus answers the lawyer's question. So you see how the, 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 the passage flows, how it, how it hangs together? So, first dialogue. We come to this expert in the law. But of course, it was the law of God. So you're not to think of him simply as a lawyer, but as a lawyer theologian. The point is that under the power of Rome, the Jews had a fair bit of local autonomy. 
And in theory, they were to rule themselves by the law of God, mediated through a whole lot of other traditions. And this man was an expert in the law, which made him a theologian, since it was the law of God, it was the scripture, but because it had immediate bearing on the society at large, more or less as a lawyer as we think of a lawyer. We're told that he stands up to test Jesus. Now, in those days, teachers sat. So we're to think of Jesus sitting down somewhere and lots of people listening in. And, and then if a student had a question to ask, instead of putting up his hand, as, as they still do in some schools today, unless the student just yells something out in the class, but instead of putting up his hand, a person would stand up as a mark of respect and then would be recognized by the teacher and then the student would ask the question. But although he is standing up, it's not as a mark of respect here. We read, he stood up to test Jesus. Oh, those of us who teach have all had students like that. Some students ask questions because they want to learn. Some students ask questions because they want to show off. Some students ask questions because they're trying to trap you into saying something really stupid, really dumb, and they've thought out their moves three or four ahead, and they want to see if you're going to fall for it. There are, there are many, many reasons. And the reasons eventually of Jesus' opponents became even more perverse than that. A little farther on in this book, in chapter 20, verse 20, we read, Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Eventually, this business of testing Jesus became really quite malicious. At the end of the day, they wanted to find something from his mouth that would make him culpable in law. So he stands up and he asks the question, the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's an interesting question. People spoke of inheriting eternal life in those days, but in one sense, it's a bizarre way of putting things. What must I do to inherit anything? First answer, well, get born into the right family, you know? <laughs> In which case, to talk of doing something seems a bit anachronistic, you know? There's not a whale of a lot you can do to get born into the right family. But nevertheless, uh, that sort of a metaphorical precision aside, this man clearly thinks that to get eternal life, whether received as a gift or inherited or whatever, he has to do something. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't answer him. Or more precisely, he answers him by asking him a question. I have a friend, a former student, a Jewish Christian called Randy Newman, who worked for years and years and years in universities. Eventually, he wrote a book called Questioning Evangelism. He's a graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I teach. One of the shrewdest personal evangelists I've ever met. Questioning Evangelism. Now, in this book, he's not questioning evangelism. Rather, what he's doing is showing how questions can be used in evangelism. It's a questioning kind of evangelism. And he begins by running through all of the passages in the four Gospels where Jesus answers a question with his own question. And this is one of the passages he looks at. It's, 
It's pretty common, actually. When you start looking at them, Jesus does this pretty often. And you can see the advantage. For example, supposing someone comes to you and says, um, you don't believe, do you, that unless you believe in Jesus, you're going to hell? You really believe that Jesus is the only way to escape going to hell? Do you really believe that? How do you reply? Well, you could begin by a disquisition on the nature of holiness. <laughs> well, you've got to look at this thing from God's perspective first. And then after that, in terms of the exclusiveness of the sovereign God who has disclosed himself in Scripture, you must come to grips with the nature of revelation and so on. Well, approximately after the second sentence, he's lost you. But supposing you answer this way. You don't believe in the proposition that everybody that does not accept Jesus as Savior and Lord is going to hell. Do you believe that, do you? And you say, you mean you think that nobody should go to hell? And every time that Randy Newman's tried that or I've tried that, we always get the same sort of response. Well, I suppose somebody should go. I mean, Hitler or somebody. <laughs> And so you say back, well, what do you think the criteria should be for who's going to hell? And suddenly you've got a serious question going. You've got a serious discussion that's, discussion that's, that's underway. Do you, do, do you see? How did you get there? Not initially by giving an answer, but by asking the right question. Do you see? Now work through the Gospels sometime and just note the places where Jesus answers a question with a question and gets the whole discussion running off in another direction. Or read the little book by Randy Newman, Questioning Evangelism. So that's what Jesus does here. Jesus is perfectly aware that this question is slightly bizarre. And in any understanding of grace, to focus all the attention on what you do to get this eternal life is skewed. So let's get some things out on the table, good and proper. What do you think? What do you think you must do to inherit eternal life? How do you read the law? You're the expert. You're the expert in the law. How do you read it, Jesus says. And so the man replies. And he replies by quoting Scripture. He replies with a quotation from Deuteronomy 6 and from Leviticus 19. How do you inherit eternal life? Well, the lawyer says, I'll, I'll tell you what I read. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Number two, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what you have to do to inherit eternal life. Now, most of you in this room, I'm quite sure, have read enough of your Bibles to know that Jesus elsewhere quotes these same two passages. You can read the parallel in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. There Jesus is having a discussion with another lawyer. These lawyers keep showing up. And this particular lawyer asks a different question. That lawyer asks the question, 
What is the most important commandment in the law? That's a very different question from what must I do to inherit eternal life? But when that lawyer asks his question, what is the most important commandment in the law? Jesus does not reply with his own question. He replies with these same two quotations. He says the first most important commandment is love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second, he says, is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we don't know which episode came first. It's even possible that this lawyer had heard Jesus give the answer to the previous question and thought, I'm going to throw these Bible texts back in Jesus' face and see what he does with it. That's possible. But these texts were being circulated in, in early rabbinic discussion at the time. There was an ongoing debate in first century Palestinian Judaism about what was the most important commandment in the law. So, so it may well be that these are two separate episodes with, with the same answers given, but they're given to different questions. And a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. You have to stop and think what quoting these two verses means in the case of each lawyer, because they mean something different. In the case of Mark chapter 12, what's the most important commandment of the law? The first, love the Lord your God with heart and soul and mind and strength. Why is that the most important commandment of the law? Because it's the commandment you always break if you break any other. It's the commandment which, if you keep perfectly, you will never commit any sin. It's the commandment that shows you that at the end of the day, all sin is God-related. If you bop a policeman on the head or cheat on your income tax or betray your spouse, if you nurse rage or bitterness or hatred, you have resentments at work and you hate people in your local church, do you know who's the most offended party? God. That's why David, after his wretched sin with Bathsheba and then bumping off Bathsheba's husband, eventually when he comes to confession, says in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now at a superficial level, that wasn't true. He sinned against Bathsheba, he seduced her. Sinned against Uriah the Hittite, he had him killed. Sinned against the military high command, he corrupted them. Sinned against his family, he betrayed them. Sinned against the nation, as king he was the chief magistrate. He was supposed to be preserving justice and order. He betrayed. It's hard to think of anybody that he didn't sin against. But he actually says, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Because what makes sin sin is that it's against God. If he had loved God with heart and soul and mind and strength, he wouldn't have seduced Bathsheba. And the second command is like it in that if you really do love your neighbor as yourself, then you are no longer the focal point of your entire existence. You are not the center of the universe. You're looking at things through other eyes, through God's eyes and through other eyes. Did you see? That keeps you from sin. So it's a very profound answer that Jesus gives. The most important commandment is to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. But this lawyer is asking a different question. 
This lawyer is asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his own answer to that question is, love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Now, in one sense, that's a valid answer. In fact, before we probe on the significance of his answer, look at Jesus' answer to the lawyer's answer. Verse 28, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. What? Is Jesus saying that's really how you get eternal life? Hmm? All you have to do is love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself and you're in. That's it. That's what our generation wants to believe. But now you have to stop and think about it. Is Jesus saying this with a straight face? Isn't he saying something like this? Oh, you've given the right answer, my dear friend. Anyone who meets such a standard will not need grace. Well done. If you want to do something to inherit eternal life, that's what you've got to do. Love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor and yourself. Go ahead, do it, and you're in. So there. <laughs> and of course, that is certainly what Jesus is saying, and the lawyer knows it. The reason we know that the lawyer knows it is he feels nibbled. That's why he asked the next question. He's got to justify himself now. He knows he can't live up to those standards. So, so he's got to ask another round of questions to protect, to, to protect this attack from the side that he didn't see coming. Do you really love God with heart and soul and mind and strength? Oh, there are moments when we as Christians feel such an outflow of love for God because of God's grace, because of his spirit, that you feel you could die for Christ. There are moments that we have like that, aren't there? And God help us. We start patting ourselves on the back because we're feeling so holy today. <laughs> there are some moments when you actually do really, 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 really care about other people and, and you, you would put yourself out for them and, and, and you would do anything for them and you're looking at things from their perspective and pretty soon you pat yourself on the back for that too, you know? I'm having a pretty good holiness week, I am. <laughs> and then you realize how desperately thin all our love for God really is, all of our love for one another. But if that's what you have to do to get in, then, boy, heaven's going to be an awfully empty place. So that brings us to the end of the first dialogue. And so we begin the second dialogue with the lawyer's first question in this sequence. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's almost as if he didn't dare bring up questions about love for God. That one was just a bit too much. You're going to go over the cliff on that one. But maybe I can catch you on the definition of neighbor on the second one. This theme of self-justification is one of the minor themes of Luke. It keeps showing up. Let me draw your attention to a couple of passages. In fact, we'll deal with it tomorrow morning, those of you who belong to this church, when we consider the rich man and Lazarus, where it comes up very strongly. 
But look at Luke 16. Jesus is there talking about money, and we read, verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. Now, it's not as if you and I go through life saying, I've got more money than you do. Therefore, I'm better than you. We're not quite that crass. We're a lot more subtle. But, but you know, you're, you're 22 and you have an old jalopy and the termites hold hands to hold it together. It's a bit of a bazoo. <laughs> and then something comes along, you inherit some money, whatever, and you get your first decent car. And you sort of went a little bit up market on, on, on this vehicle. My son, who's a Marine, came back from his first tour. He's done three tours overseas under fire, he came back and he bought a truck with eight cylinders. I said, uh, Nicholas, uh, what do you need eight cylinders for? And he said, well, Dad, this truck's got really good computer control. It runs along on four cylinders and gives me the gas mileage I need, but then when I'm really hauling, I can put my foot down and be a man. You gotta like a kid like that, don't you? <laughs> He's justifying himself, you know? So, so you get this swish car, and you come up to a red light, and you look over next to you, and there's somebody about your age with a bazoo. Mm. And you don't wanna stick it into neutral and rev the engine, that's showing off, that would be not very classy, but nevertheless, when that light changes, without peeling rubber, that, that's, that's just too infantile, you nevertheless put your foot down in such a way that it's not long before you see him in your mirror and you're satisfied. <laughs> this business of self-justification is, is, is really tricky, you know. It comes up in a lot of things, in what we wear and the kind of house we have. And then we, we, can, we can boast about so many things. I, I sit on a board where we give away millions of dollars every year to various evangelistic and things. It's a, it's a foundation and so on. So we fly into one particular city from various parts of the country and we sit there and talk all day. And it turns out that all of us are people who travel a lot. One's a missionary who's traveling constantly and uh, another one's a retired missionary who spends half his time at Trinity and half his time in Africa and he's flying all over the place and, and then there's me, I fly all over the place. And so we started, we were being driven out to the airport to catch a, a flight home and um, we, we started swapping airline stories. Do, 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 do you know? You don't, you don't travel very long before you find a lot of strange things taking place. I flew back from Warsaw once on Lot Airlines, and next to me was a woman of considerable proportions who had a, a beagle dog with her of similarly uh, significant proportions. And every once in a while on this uh, 12 or 13 hour flight, um, she would take the dog out and hold it in her arms like this, which sort of leaned over onto me. And, and then every once in a while, she'd get up and sort of waddle into the aisle and put down a special blanket that absorbed fluids, <laughs> plop the dog down and let the dog urinate and defecate next to me. And this, this happened on two or three cycles, you know. Hey, have you got a better one than that on your airline travels? 
So we were swapping these stories, you know, my story's better than your story. And I suddenly realized we're doing it again, you know, we're, we're justifying ourselves. I, I've had more ridiculous experiences on airlines than you've had. There's so many dimensions in which we, we justify ourselves in life. It's pathetic. You see, it's theoretically possible to tell these stories and it's just good fun. But, but you know, our human hearts are so corrupt that, that the line between good fun and beginning to brag a bit gets awfully thin. But it doesn't end there in chapter 16. What do we read? Chapter 18, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. That is, they were self-justified. Do you see? And who looked down on everyone else. Oh, that sounds like self-righteousness to me, self-justification. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. The other man went home justified before himself. On the last day, would you rather be justified before God or justified before yourself? Do you see? One of the minor themes running through Luke is self-justification. And it pops up in our passage in Luke chapter 10. He knows he's been noble, this lawyer. Wanting to justify himself, he asks another question. The first time he asked a question was to test Jesus. The second time he asked a question, his motives are no better. They're just bad for another reason. Now he's not so much testing Jesus as justifying himself. He's still not really all that hungry to know the truth. And he asks... And who is my neighbor? So Jesus responds with his own question in verse 36. But to get there, he's got to tell the parable of what we call the parable of, good, of the Good Samaritan. So a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it is downhill. It's about 17 miles. And in the first century, a windy, rocky road all the way down to the Jordan Valley. First century society was pretty highly structured. Different groups could be identified by language or accent, by dress. The priests could speak Hebrew. The peasants in Judea and to some extent in the north spoke Aramaic. Along the coast, some people still spoke Phoenician. Up in Galilee, some peasants spoke Aramaic and others spoke Syriac and Greek. If you were a government official, you spoke Latin. And moreover, there was different dress for these different classes of people, too. But this man has been beaten and is half dead. Presumably that means he's unconscious, not showing any signs of life. And he's stripped naked because in those days, a very significant proportion of your income went either to food or to clothing. So there's not much point just taking a few shekels from a purse. You take the guy's clothes as well. That's, that's where real money is invested. 
So they've left him half dead, bleeding, and naked. So how can you identify the guy? You can't hear his accent. You don't know what race he belongs to. The first man to come along then is a priest. He's riding. In those days, priests often went up to Jerusalem and did their two-week stint and then went home to their farms again. So the fact that he's heading down, apparently, from Jerusalem to Jericho means he's probably just done his two-week stint at the temple. And he looks at this character by the side of the road. He may not even be able to tell whether he's alive or dead. If he's dead and the priest touches him, then the priest is defiled. That's the law. He would have to go back to the temple for another week or two of purificatory rites, which would make him awfully late getting home. And he couldn't use a cell phone to tell his wife, sorry, dear, I'm going to be late. <laughs> Besides, who knows who he is? You know, hooligans attract hooligans. The guy might deserve it for all I know. And, and even if... Even if he's set upon, that means that the brigands themselves could be in the rocks all around here. Now's the time to kick the sides of my mule and get out of here in a big hurry before they set on me too. If they set on him, they could set on me. And off he goes and leaves him. And a Levite, similarly. And then a Samaritan. You have to remember who the Samaritans are. More than seven centuries earlier, in 721 BC, the mighty Assyrian Empire, the regional superpower, captured the northern tribes and took off their leadership, their nobility, their rich people, their aristocracy, off into captivity. And then they brought in others from other lands into the land of what came to be just called Samaria, the northern tribes. And they intermarried with time. And so the inherited religion from the Old Testament gradually was diluted and changed around a bit. Moreover, because they had rebelled against the house of David, they didn't like going up to Jerusalem. So in due course, they, they didn't believe any part of the Old Testament that talked about the house of David and Jerusalem. They just believed in the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was the Samaritan Bible. That was it. If you're going to build a temple, they said, it, it, it should be done in the mountains of Samaria where the people first recited antiphonally their vows before the Lord when they crossed the Jordan River on these, these, this pair of mountains. So the, the, the Samaritans built their own temple there. In the second century before Christ, the Jews went in and destroyed it. So you can understand there was a lot of bad blood between these two groups. John's Gospel says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. It's an idiom that means they wouldn't even eat together. They hated each other. But here it's a Samaritan... He gets off his donkey, pours out some oil and wine, traditional healing solutions, probably the one to soothe a wee bit, and the alcohol would be some mild antiseptic, I suppose. Put him on his donkey, which means that now the Samaritan's walking on this rocky road, takes him to an inn, which does not mean the holiday inn. It would be some larger house with a cattle shed, and you could bed down in the cattle shed with the straw for a few cents. He looks after him, binds him up, presumably buys him some clothes, 
or has some extras himself. Make sure he gets some food. He looks after him, the text says. However much goes into that. And the next day, he goes to the innkeeper and he says, you know me, I, I, I do this route pretty often. You know I, I keep coming back. Whatever this man needs, put it on my bill. I'll pay the tab. You want me to sign for it? Now, you've got to understand how important this is. In the ancient world, there were no bankruptcy laws, no bankruptcy protection laws. If you owed money and you couldn't pay it, you had no choice but to sell yourself into slavery. No choice. So, I don't know how badly this chap was hurt, but the very fact that the Samaritan is willing to cover costs, a denarius or two, a couple of denarii would cover this chap for a week or so. That's about it, maybe two. The very fact that it could go longer than that suggests that probably he had broken bones that had to re-knit re and re-heal. He could be there for weeks. And at the end of it, well, his money was stolen. He wouldn't have a credit card. They hadn't been invented yet. He couldn't dial somebody up and get some money wired in on Western Union. So he would be entirely at the mercy of the innkeeper. The innkeeper could require that he work off the debt, or he could just take him as a slave. So the Samaritan, by offering to pay everything, no matter what, however long it takes, has not only saved this man from death, he has saved him from slavery. All at his own expense. Now Jesus has told a story. And he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Oh, that's such a shrewd question. Everything's inverted. The lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? That is, whom do I have to help? Jesus' question is, who is a neighbor to this man? That is, who is acting like a neighbor? Not, whom do I have to help, but what should neighbors do? Shouldn't neighbors help? The lawyer can't even bring himself to answer, well, I guess it was the Samaritan. He's not going to use a filthy word like Samaritan on his holy lips. So he replies euphemistically. Uh, it was the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. Now let's think about those two last verses a bit before we press on to observe a little more in the context. By telling a story where Jesus forces the question who's acting as a neighbor. Jesus is, in fact, telling a parable that unpacks material that is in the Old Testament. Instead of thinking of the Old Testament as merely a series of laws that you have to observe in order to inherit eternal life, he's now forcing thought on the question, where's your heart? Whom do you love? Not, what can I get away with? What's the bar so I can get in? It changes everything. 
And yet that kind of demand is already there in the Old Testament. The Old Testament does say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. But for many Jews, this transformation of the heart, this transformation of the life was not as clear as the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy. You do this and you live. You do that and you'll die. You do this and you'll be prosperous. You do that and you'll die. And so many people today, likewise, in Old Testament studies, speak of this as Deuteronomistic theology. And they actually think that the book of Deuteronomy is primarily about doing this and having life and doing that and having death. It's all what you do determines how it comes out at the end. No grace, just law, which is the way some Jews read Deuteronomy in the first century. Today it takes liberals to do it. <laughs> but if you read the book of Deuteronomy closely, it's astonishing how much grace there is in it. Besides, if you read the book of Deuteronomy closely, how does it end up? What's the last thing in the book of Deuteronomy? The last thing in the book of Deuteronomy is Moses himself doesn't get into the promised land. If Moses doesn't get into the promised land, who on earth does? The blessings and the cursings are really important to understand. There are some things that please God and some things that bring down the judgment of God on you. But if you think that that's going to get you into the promised land, Moses couldn't make it. This meekest man on all the earth ends up blowing his cool. So what hope do the rest of us have? That's what the book of Deuteronomy is about. Jesus is unpacking things from Deuteronomy 6 and from Leviticus 19 showing the real direction in which the law points, what it anticipates, where it's heading, what is required. Now, take a look at a slightly more extended context. We won't go into detail, just pick up a few details. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, you come across one of the most important structural markers in the entire Gospel of Luke. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. What? Chapter 9? You're barely a third of the way through the book of Luke and already you're talking about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. As the time came for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, what you have to realize is that all four Gospels organize their material a little differently. For example, in Mark's Gospel, a lot of the miracle stories are scattered throughout the whole of the book. There's a miracle story here, a miracle account there. Whereas Luke tends to group them together. He's got them grouped together in Matthew 8 and 9, for example. Luke organizes things a bit differently. He shows that Jesus, from Luke 9.51 on, is heading to Jerusalem. The other books show how Jesus goes back and forth. He sometimes he's in Galilee, and then he's back down in Jerusalem again, and he's back in Galilee. Uh, Luke organizes the material, so the whole motion from this point on, from Luke 9.51, is on the way to Jerusalem. It's on the way to the cross. It's on the way to the resurrection. It's on the way to glory. And it's not just this verse. It keeps showing up. I won't take the time to read them, but... 1322, 1711, 1831, 1928. In each case, the point is made on the way to Jerusalem. This took place while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. So do you see what is being said? 
Luke has established a narrative flow in which everything that takes place is under the shadow of the impending cross. Because everybody knows how these gospels work. They all head for the passion narrative. They all head for the cross and the resurrection. That's why some wag has said that the canonical gospels are basically passion narratives with extended introductions. That's exactly what Luke thinks. So as early as one-third of the way through the book, he's already got Jesus marked out, resolutely setting his face for Jerusalem, for Jerusalem, for Jerusalem. So even this account of the parable of the Good Samaritan has got to be read under the shadow of the cross. If you think you can get into heaven just by loving your neighbor as yourself and loving God pretty nicely, then what on earth is the cross doing there? Why does Jesus even have to go to Jerusalem? What's the resurrection about? The whole gospel is, as a book now, the, 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 the gospel of Luke is transmuted. It makes no sense anymore. Do, do, do you see? It's all under the shadow of the cross. But there's more. That's Luke 9. Luke 10, just before the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have Jesus sending out the 72 in a kind of trainee mission. He gives them authority over demons and tells them where to preach and how to be faithful and where to live. And they come back overjoyed. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. To which Jesus replies, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That is, his authority is being destroyed by your ministry. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, verse 20, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Many of you will know the name of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. I got to know him in his closing years in Britain. I moved to England in 1972. He died in January 1981. His last two years, he was sinking from cancer. The man who would become his biographer, Ian Murray, says that about six months before the doctor, everyone called him the doctor, he was a medical doctor before he was a preacher, six months before the doctor died, Ian went to him and asked this question. How are you handling it now that you've been put on the shelf? You're used to preaching to thousands. Over your lifetime, you've seen tens of thousands converted. You've been instrumental in reconstituting into varsity in the UK after World War II. You were instrumental with others in founding the Banner of Truth Trust with all of its publications. You've regenerated a vision for expository preaching. You've reintroduced the Puritans to the Christian church after they had largely been lost from view. You've begun the Puritan Conference, and then the Westminster Pastors Group. You've been a model, a challenge, again and again and again. And now it takes all of your energy to get out of bed, put on your three-piece suit, which he still did, sit in a chair, edit a manuscript for an hour before he took off his three-piece suit and went back to bed. How are you coping with that? Lloyd-Jones said, Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name. 
but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I am perfectly content. So where does salvation lie? In being good enough and strong enough to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself? Nope. It lies in the sovereign election of God. Your name is written in heaven. Rejoice in that. You know me. That's what's important. And then immediately after our passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you get the scene in the home of Martha and Mary. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, in another narrative, Martha comes out actually a little better than Mary. Read John 11. But in this passage, she's so busy cooking and doing other necessary things that Jesus, in this case, rebukes her softly and says, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. What is that one thing that Mary has chosen? To sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. So you see, while this lawyer thinks that he's going to inherit eternal life, by loving God with heart and soul and mind and strength and his neighbor as himself, Jesus is saying, there's really only one thing that's needed. To become my disciple on the way to my cross. A text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. So now let me end with some pastoral reflections, three of them. Number one, if we are to think of eternal life as inherited, then we must see clearly that we cannot possibly earn this inheritance. The pretentiousness of this lawyer is appalling. He has so little self-knowledge. He has this expert knowledge of Scripture, but he doesn't put it together very well. He can quote texts, but somehow has not learned grace. He actually thinks that somehow he can love God enough and love his neighbor as himself enough until it's pointed out to him that it is a wee bit pretentious. And then he's got to make self-justifying arguments about who really is the neighbor, ducking all over the place, squirming. If we are to think of eternal life as inherited, which is a great theme, actually, in the Epistle of the Hebrews, we'd better understand that we have the inheritance because someone else paid the price. And at this juncture in the narrative, 
he is already on the way to Jerusalem. Number two. Who is the Good Samaritan? Well, in one sense, he's just a figure in a story. It's a, it's a make-believe story. And Jesus tells the story, as we've seen from the structure of the account, Jesus tells the story in order to set up his own question. Who is the neighbor to the one who fell among thieves? But I'm about 99.99% sure. That's pretty sure. I'm not quite 100% sure, but I'm very sure that Luke sees something else. In other words, when Jesus tells the story, he does not say, I'm, let me tell you a story about a good Samaritan, and if you listen closely, you'll see that I'm the real good Samaritan. You see, that's not what he's doing with the story. What Jesus is doing with the story is setting up the scene for the question that he wants to ask the lawyer. But Luke can't help see something more. Who is the one who rescues the dead and the damned? Pays for it all and saves them from slavery, absorbing the whole cost. Who, isn't, who is often hated by the very people he saves? Cursed Samaritans. Luke tells the story, but he cannot help but see, because he knows that this story is going to the cross, that the ultimate good Samaritan is Jesus, which makes us the poor beggars who have fallen among thieves. But there's one third point. Clearly, nevertheless, Jesus expects his followers to behave as he himself does. How does the passage end? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Yes, Jesus is the one who goes to Jerusalem. He's the one who takes his cross and bears our sin in his own body on the tree. But Jesus tells us we're to take up our cross daily and follow him. Peter, in his first letter, chapter 2, makes it clear that in many ways, Jesus' death on the cross is unique. Only his death on the cross pays for sin. But then he says, Jesus did this, leaving us an example that we should follow in his wake. In other words, the gospel of God justifies us and thus gets rid of our self-justification. It justifies us before God because Christ did pay for our sins. But the gospel is more than justification. It's not less, but it's certainly more. The gospel of God transforms. It transforms in regeneration. It continues to transform in sanctification. And one day we shall see him and we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope and purifies himself even as Christ also is pure. Did you see? The notion 
of a genuine Christian being indistinguishable morally from a non-Christian is simply not found in the New Testament. Doesn't Jesus say, by their fruit you shall know them? Oh, the New Testament acknowledges there can be temporary backsliding. But when you see someone who's made a profession of faith at the age of 14 and living from the age of 15 and a half like the world and the flesh and the devil and at the age of 55 is, is on his fourth marriage and broken down and drunk and, and about to go to jail for cheating on his income tax, it's no, not much help if his mother comes up to you and says, you know, once saved, always saved. Don't you agree, Pastor? The right answer is, well, yes, of course, but when you're really saved once, it changes your life. By their fruit, you shall know them. And thus it behooves the Christian church today to be Samaritans. As Jesus is the ultimate Samaritan. That's why Paul elsewhere can say, do good to all men especially those of the household of faith. There's a primary responsibility there. So in the, re the age of the Reformation, the reformers who insisted that justification is by grace alone through faith alone, equally insisted, but such faith is never alone. The ground of our justification is exclusively the crosswork of Christ. The mode of receiving it is exclusively faith in Him. Exclusively, faith alone. But such faith never remains alone. It produces fruit. I have sometimes told the story. If you've heard it from me before, forgive me if I repeat it told the story of John Newton. John Newton, the slave trader. I imagine most of you saw the film Amazing Grace. Yes? Or is this a church where you don't go to movies? <laughs> In which case, let me tell you what took place. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really the, the, the story of uh, how a lot of the details were right. How at the time of Wesley and Whitfield and so on in the 18th century, um, the Lord raised up one or two men who were called not to the ministry, but to breaking down the slave trade across the Atlantic. And one of the men who gave counsel was John Newton, who himself had been a slave trader. He estimated that in his life as a slave trader, captain of a slave trading ship, he had transported about 20,000 slaves across the Atlantic. And after he became a Christian and abandoned all of that, he said in his nightmares he could hear them screaming every night. He eventually became pastor of a little church in Olney. And wrote a hymn that we all know Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And toward the end of his life, he wrote words to this effect. 
I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what one day I will be. But I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. There was only one who went to Jerusalem. He did it on our behalf. But he is also the one who, having saved us, tells us yet, go and do likewise. Let us pray. Grant us care and clarity of mind and understanding as we study your most holy word, Lord God. Give us attention to detail and ability to see how the skine of many, many trajectories intertwine and intertwine and bring us to the same place, to King Jesus, the Son of God the God-man, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the risen King, the perfect priest, the Word of God incarnate. And having seen him, grant that we may in all of our lives adore him and take up our cross and follow him. For Jesus' sake, amen. Oh, that we would further feel our need for him, and oh, that we would be astounded by the grace that has found, found out us. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? And can it be that we would do what he does in helping people and serving them? Well, we have one more break before our final session this evening. We have a Q&A with uh, Don and Dave in, uh, in just 15 minutes from now. Uh, well, let's say 12 to 15. How about that, okay? So why don't you stand up, stretch, or use the bathroom, get some coffee, and uh, we'll come back in here for a bit of time with our speakers. Jesus table. 